Welcome back to another episode of the Bodybuilding Down Under podcast. I am DC, one of your four co-hosts, and I'm joined by Jack, Lawrence, Andy. Why? Now, before we get into today's episode, I wanted to catch up with the lads, see where they're at in terms of their training, their nutrition, and their bodybuilding goals. Let's start with you, Jack, my man. How are you going at this point in time, where things are at? Yeah, things are going well. Uh, in about the middle of my training block at the moment, so week three, of probably six and it's been a good start to the year nothing really too out of the ordinary for me just uh, continuing to eat some food lift some weights uh, body weights creeping up um, i'm in the, the the low 93s now um appetite's been fairly consistent um it hasn't been great but it hasn't been poor either i find that i just need to make sure i i don't be too sedentary because if i for example miss my afternoon walk, walk uh, with the dogs then I'll reach dinner and it's a bit of a slog to get down dinner because that's where I consume all, all my veg for the day pretty much so mm. um, still only having the one shake which is in the morning pre-training and uh, that might eventually get to two shakes we'll, we'll wait and see um, but I'm trying to prolong that as much as possible because I think I'll probably still have two or three two, at the very least two months in a, in a surplus I'm going to try and prolong this as long as possible because I ideally want to do like a mini cut um, after this push-up phase and then after that like the pre-prep phase so and realistically I've still got a year or over a year until prep would begin so I'm going to see if I can um, drag this out for as long as possible what's the what's the heaviest you got in your prior gaining phases Heaviest I've ever got was 94.4, which was in around August of 2020. So I haven't been that heavy for a long time. And what are you now? Sorry, you'd say 93? Well, yeah, low 93. So, yeah, you know, obviously I'll... vastly different in terms of body composition, mm, which yeah, is sure. very apparent based on the photos that you've you've uploaded, mate. So you've done Thank you. tremendous, tremendous work over the past couple of years for sure, man. Um, is that why you've, um, you, you're growing the beard back again? Because you're kind of hiding the, <laughs> the, the chin. <laughs> I think this is just a I kind of like this amount of growth but anything longer than this I, it looks a bit too scruffy but it's also just a bit of laziness on my part mm, I, I, got I, can't, I can't get over that stage where if, if um, like I'm that initial stage of growing your beard where my face is so itchy it's mm. ridiculous so that's why I think I just keep keep the mo because it's a lot it's a lot yeah. more easy to uh to manage but uh, let's move on to you, DY. How's the, the beard growth going? Oh, I'm the exact same as you. As soon as it goes <laughs> over two mil, it's just so uncomfortable. I'm like, oh, you know what? I might be able to push a little bit. And it's just, it's the most uncomfortable thing for like three days. I'm like, nah, this ain't worth it. So it's, yeah, yeah, it's straight yeah, up agree, gone. Straight Jack, up. have you ever gotten it like lined up? I've never seen you with like, you know how you go to those barbers and get like a full mm. lined up beard? I always make sure not to ask for that. Uh, really... I was out to say, I could just imagine com him coming in with this just lined up Chad beard, just super sharp. Mm. See, you'll have to get it done before we hit the training session this week. Yeah, you'd have to call him Giga Chad. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but when the jawline fades, it just gets a touch sharper, you know? Yeah, 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 exactly. Oh, uh, yeah, but in terms of everything, it's been really good. Uh, the recent training program I've been running, it's like a lot more higher volume per muscle group per session. So it's kind of somewhat like a bro split, but I've got a little bit of back in every single workout and then one day for delts and then one day for chest. And I thought it would have been a lot harder to progress across the session than what it actually has been. But I've been seeing very, very like good progress every single session. I don't know if it's because I haven't done such high volume each session, like for that certain muscle group. I think it's like for like chest, for example, I think I'm doing about 11, 12 sets of chest just in that one session. And I've progressed pretty much like every single set, um, every single workout and quite substantially as well from the get go. So that was something that I didn't really expect, but Hey, I'm going to take it. Um, I'm scheduled for a deload next week, which I, I feel like I need to take because this week was a little bit slower compared to previous um, and the progress has halted, but I'll probably run a very similar program again next time after the deload maybe might make some slight changes but in terms of everything i was actually very surprised at the amount of growth and progression per per session um but recently i did make the jump to powerhouse so lawrence unfortunately you're probably going to be seeing me a lot more uh but probably not at the 10 a.m slot uh, <laughs> um but yeah so a lot of some things have been mixing up um 
like machines i've just got to find the groove on a couple of weights like you know the, sometimes cable pulleys are a little bit different and the weights are a little bit different so other than you know just mucking around trying a couple of new machines and so on like that it's been extremely smooth um weights creeping up quite nicely as well um and overall everything's pretty much tracking perfectly awesome man and lawrence my man where are you at Oh, mate, I, I could be better, all things considered. So it's been a bit of an ordinary week, to be honest. I have finally fallen to the spicy cough after nearly three years of running. So I uh, came down with that at the start of the week. And to be honest, it hasn't been as bad as I expected. Like Monday, when I tested positive in the morning, I was obviously very ordinary. But even yesterday, I was significantly better. And then today, I, I feel like I'm back to normal aside from just being a little bit congested and having a little bit of a cough still. But otherwise, I, I feel pretty good. Head feels good. The body aches are gone, which are really good. But it was also a bit of a, you know, when it rains, it pours situation because on Sunday during my leg session, I pulled up a bit of a, with a bit of a niggle in my left adductor and a little bit in my right sort of vastus medialis as well. And I kind of think it was just sort of a combination of everything in a way, because I'd done a session actually with, with Scott, the, uh, the Quilpy goat who listens to the show, of course. So we trained together on Wednesday and I don't know if I maybe just pushed a little bit too hard during the session. And it was my first week back after the deload, but I was getting like really severe cramps, um, for that day. And then like the afternoon at work as well. And the doms on the, days following were just like unlike anything I've ever had in my entire life so even going into that session on the Sunday I had pretty severe doms and I was trying to sort of just get moving as best as I could and then as soon as I got into one of my warm-ups I just felt this little bit of a twang in my adductor and I was like ah like that's super annoying but it only seems to be pretty low grade because you know three days of doing essentially nothing at home has really helped that um, so I'm not really feeling any pain there anymore and I just may need to work my way back into the lower volume. Uh, so the lower body training um, nice and sensibly for the week to come. But I'm hoping that, you know, back end of this week, I'll be able to return a negative test and then can get back to at least a couple light sessions this week. And then from next week, hopefully should all be back to normal. But, you know, it's definitely frustrating. We had like the, the Christmas break where I had a bit of a deload. And then one week back into normal training and then having to essentially take like another force deload is, is really annoying, but um, you know, these things happen and I suppose I'd rather they happen now than when we're actually in prep. So I'm counting it as a bit of a blessing to hopefully have a bit of immunity for the, the next few months as prep starts and that sort of thing. But yeah, not a, not a perfect week, mate, but we're definitely through the worst of it now, which is good. Mm, yeah no definitely i think this is probably if you had to get it at some point in time right it would obviously be better to get it now versus when you actually start your your contest prep is there anything that you're doing at home to sort of prehab it or, or any management strategies whilst you can't actually train is there anything that like any mobility work that you're doing anything that you're you're doing to try to manage it yeah so i tried to you know be a good boy and assign myself some physio exercises which i, I managed to get done so essentially all i was doing around twice a day I would do a couple sets of just lying hip flexion because on the Sunday when I was trying to just get it moving like I couldn't even really like as soon as I would flex past 90 degrees the pain would be you know pretty significant so just getting that movement going and that now is pain-free which is really good and then I was just getting a foam roller and doing some like adduction squeezes just to the point of a little bit of discomfort, just to start to get a little bit of load in that muscle there, but not push it too hard. And then just doing some body weight squats and stuff like that. So really just trying to move it around and at least, you know, move the hip and stuff like that. And then hopefully, you know, today it actually feels really good. Um, I'm yet to give it a bit of a work around today. So I'll probably do some exercises after this and see how they feel, but I'm hoping that I could at least, you know, get into the, the gym in the second half of this week to do a bit of a light leg session and hopefully take some leg extensions and some leg curls to a decent proximity to failure at the very least. So like all my upper body training should be fine, um, but it's just that lower body stuff. Mm, but hopefully, then, you know, within a couple of weeks, we're back to normal. For sure, yeah. And then in terms of the nutrition side of things, have you just kept sort of cows the same during the time that you can't really exercise or 
What's yeah, been- essentially, mate. So, Joe, obviously, I let Joey know at the start of the week, and he basically just because we were pro- we were scheduled to make an increase, um, because I just checked in and sort of let him know. So we decided not to make the increase just because I'm I'm not home doing much, but obviously you don't also want to pull back a lot of calories because your body is, you know, actively fighting a, a virus. Um, so you want to be able to give it enough fuel. Um, but I suppose the, the main thing has just been trying to maintain. So I've actually been pretty impressed. Like my appetite hasn't really been affected that much. I've still been able to get all my food in. I was a bit worried about that. Like, am I going to have to go the, the big Jack method and, and blend up everything and, suck it down through a straw but no all the food's been fine um and it's actually surprising how good i feel after only a couple days um because you know obviously when this all started it was like blanket seven days of of isolation but you know by next monday which would be seven days i'd expect to feel you know more than 100 percent. so i'm hoping that if i can get that negative test then i can resume function in in society at the end of the week which would be nice Awesome, too big man. for COVID. Too big. Mate, for- I thought I thought three years. I'm gonna go without it. I'm gonna be unbeaten. But alas, mate, like any great story, you have to beat the final boss at the end. Mm. So that's down to you now, <laughs> Mr. Radford Smith. Have you not had it yet, Jack? I don't believe so. No. Yeah, right. But now that I've said that, I mean it's only a matter of time. Mate, I'm not gonna lie. On Friday night, I went to a concert. And in the car, I said to my mate, I was like, yeah, no, I still haven't had it. And I said to him, I'm just built different. Like I said, those exact <laughs> words. And there's every, like, I probably did catch it from the concert. Mm. Um, and then, yeah, sort of like Sunday night started to get a bit of a tickle. And I was like, ooh, that's a bit interesting. And then went to bed, woke up. And I was like, oh, I can't go to work today. I was like, I'll do a test just in case. And I was like, yeah, those two lines came up pretty quick, mm. smart. But. <laughs> the, the COVID strain heard you, heard you, and it's like you're gonna you're gonna learn today, motherfucker. Yeah, you're gonna learn. <laughs> you're gonna learn today. So yeah, mate, life very humbling for sure. And myself, I am in the midst of my current training block. I'm kind of like mid midway through. I feel as though I probably need a deload pretty soon. I've, I've pretty much run a eight eight week block so far and haven't really needed to deload but the old pec tendons giving me a little bit of a fight back with my horizontal presses and i'm just feeling a bit less recovered upon waking up in the am as well so typically some indications that that i'm I'm due for a deload very very soon so i might look to to run that as of next week uh how i typically deload would be i'd I'd probably reduce a working set down by one and and typically a lot of my my loads down by around a good 20 25 percent or so just so there's a greater proximity you know in terms of um further away from 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 fatigue slash failure so i can actually recover and in terms of my body weight at the moment i'm sitting at around the 93s the the mid 93s which is about a kilo, 1.3, kilos up from my lowest low in my, my diet, my diet phase. So yeah. And that's, I think I finished my diet kind of like mid, mid to early December. So it's sort of a good kilo or so up in that time frame, roughly around 300 grams or so per week I've been gaining at this point in time. So, so things are, you know, pretty comfy. Do you think it's so, all yeah, muscle? It's all muscle, mate. hundred yeah. percent. That's impressive. No fat mass whatsoever. <laughs> DC, you would be high 93s though, wouldn't you? And Jack, you're low 93s. Isn't that correct? Yes. You're just edging him out a little bit? It's going to go chug a litre of water. (laughs) (laughs) A little show this weekend. Hey, yeah, exactly right, yeah. So for we'll the listeners, the we are we're gonna be we're gonna be hitting a session at the old Riggs gym this this weekend, this Saturday, for a pool session, I believe. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. I've not I've not trained there before, right? So what's that? I'll be coming regardless of my ailment. I'll be coughing and spluttering and sneezing all over the place and just be like, one more rep. One more rep. (laughs) (laughs) You'll be spotting me on Barber Row. Yeah, I will. How would you like to be spotted? Me at the back? There's only one way, yeah, from the (laughs) rear. (laughs) From the rear. Yeah, I'm probably gonna have to like go to the bathroom at that point in time. Hey, eh? I might just uh, mm. sort of step out from the session whilst while you whilst you boys do that. I'll be there. It could increase training arousal. There you go. But for you, that that is. 
Oh, for me, for sure. <laughs> All righty. Well, let's get into the, some of the topics for today. And these were some of our questions from both some of the athletes that we coach and also some questions from our sort of listener, listener question box that we put out each week. But the first question that we've got here to go through was centered along training productivity. So if you haven't made any progress in a session, such as increasing load or repetitions, how do you actually determine whether that session has been productive or not? So are there other things that you might think about in a session that, uh, that might determine you know, whether that session has been productive or not? So let's, uh, let's roll over to you, Lawrence. What are your, what are your thoughts here? Like, let's say, for example, you didn't see a progression in reps or load for, for any of your exercises is that a productive session or not? Like what would be some of the other things that you would think about? So most of my workouts, perfect. All right. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just joking. So look, I think that my sort of input to this question will be like, how often do we really see this? Like, I think you'd have to look pretty hard at some of our sessions and you probably have to look at a contest prep session to see a workout in which you weren't able to take a rep or a load crease or a load increase, I should say, on any of your exercises. So I think the first thing to consider is that the instances of this happening are going to be pretty rare. But I also think that it is also up to you in a sense, because I've certainly, you know, seen people who get very, you know, down in the dumps if they don't hit their major exercise for that day. You know, maybe you've got a barbell press, maybe you've got a deadlift or a hack squat. And if you miss out on taking a PB or potentially you drop a rep in those sorts of exercises, then, you know, people just throw the babies out with the bath water and then the rest of the session is just garbage. So I definitely, you know, have that little talk to myself of, okay, maybe my biggest lift for the day didn't quite go how I wanted it to, but there's absolutely no reason why I can't still get a quality session done for the rest of the day. And I think if you truly do have a session where, everything feels off. You weren't able to take any progressions. I think that's where you need to zoom out and look at the variables that could have been affecting that day. You know, did you go into the session dehydrated? Did you have a poor night's sleep? Are you under a lot of stress at the moment from work or other factors in your life? Obviously, those are going to be a couple of the big three. And then examining, you know, was your pre-workout routine what it normally is? Did you rush to the gym? Were you rushing your usual acclimating sets and stuff like that? And if all of those things are the same, and you're also in, you know, week six, seven, eight of your workout it could just be the fact that you, you know, need to take a deload and you're ready to, you know, try drop from some fatigue before you move into the next mesocycle. So I think my, you know, two cents for that question would be to just not read into those a lot. You know, one session is not going to be the difference between, you know, gaining or losing 10 kilograms of muscle that there's a reason why it takes people decades to become good bodybuilders is because it's all just about little pieces of the puzzle. And if you have a few bad ones here and there, like we're all going to, it's really not the end of the world. Um, I suppose there's some other things regarding, you know, how could you still progress without necessarily seeing it on a numbers basis, but I'm, I'm pretty happy to let one of the other boys cover that. But I suppose that would be my little input. Mm, for sure. What about you, DY? What are your thoughts there? I'm pretty sure Lawrence has pretty much just taken everything right there. But no, like, you know, you might be able to like clean up some form, like what Lawrence was saying, maybe some other ways. But another little thing that you could also throw in is prep. Like in prep, you're pretty much, especially on the back 12 weeks, like you're pretty much probably not going to be increasing nearly any training load. Like, you know, you might have like an exercise here or there where you might have a slight win where like, you know, some of the workouts there are still extremely reductive with nearly zero load increases and probably nearly no changes at all. In fact, they could actually probably get worse. But when you compare it body weight to the actual weight that you're lifting on the bar, majority of the time, the body weight to weight on the bar ratio is going to be a lot higher than what it would be in like your off season. But yeah, like what Lawrence was saying, like how often do you actually truly have workouts where you progress on zero exercises? And then if you do, like, you know, you look back and be like, all right, well, there's something here that didn't affect it. Like, you know, or did affect it. Like, you know, poor sleep, you know, mm. hydration, pre-workout meal. It's like a, a lot of the time, if you tick all of those boxes and everything's been done right, you should at least have a few wins each session. And if you didn't, you could probably pick apart what didn't 
but mm. like you know you can still have a good session like you know maybe you might slow down some of the movements um maybe fix up some form i've definitely done it in the past where maybe some like chest supported t-bar rosa are getting a bit sloppy um i might instead of the focus of being trying to increase the training load instead slowing down the movement you know feeling it a little bit better maybe taking out a little bit of the swing doesn't mean that it's any less productive in fact it's probably even more productive and i haven't progressed at all across that session mm, absolutely and what are your what are your thoughts jack don't really have many extra thoughts to be honest uh I, yeah, just reiterate what the other guys were saying and that uh, progression isn't always measured in reps or load. It might be measured in uh, improvement in execution or maybe you did the same amount of reps and load with a lower perceived exertion. And as DY said, like if you really aren't progressing in anything, that's an opportunity to kind of look, okay, what is wrong here? Like, because ultimately something is probably wrong, especially if you're in a surplus, like is my sleep okay? Is my nutrition okay? Is my pre-workout fueling decent? Um, am I training with sufficient intensity? All of those sorts of points. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And I think also like when it comes to even exercise, it's the exercise itself. Like you might be able to make, make more progress over time doing something like a hack squat or a V squat versus like a side lateral raise. I mean, realistically over the course of like a one to two year period, like how much, mm. how much weight have you added to your dumbbell side raise? Uh, about 30 kilos, I think, easily. <laughs> Kilo of weight side, for the just, past four years. That's just side lateraling the 40 kilo dumbbells. Yeah. I was going to say as well, on like just as like a practical takeaway for the listeners, I was listening to a podcast with Eric. I'm not sure you guys listened to the Iron Culture where they talked about sleep. And from what they've found through research is like muscular endurance seems to be affected more by training in like a sleep deprived state compared to like all out power and strength so if you do have a session where you're going in with a lack of sleep you've had a late night before blah 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 it might be worth lowering some of your rep ranges and because we know that you know stimulus is still going to be pretty comparable um, even if we are training in a lower rep range it might be a good way to try and mitigate some of those losses as much as possible while still getting like some decent work done in the gym mm. Mm, no that sounds good yeah I, I think that's i did i remember did i did uh see eric eric discuss discuss that and i thought that was quite interesting not that you don't want to use you know poor sleep as somewhat of a, an excuse to not perform but like it, it can be a variable that obviously does affect your performance poor sleep but i think the research was centered on just like an acute acute change yeah. so it was like one night of like five hours yeah. sleep it's unlikely to have a huge detriment to your performance exactly. as opposed to like multiple nights with, with really poor sleep. Right. Yeah. And it's funny because that's like the classic, like, you know how they always joke, like a power lifter will put out like a list of 17 things before they post their video of like, this is everything that went wrong in the last 24 hours, but I still managed this lift. And it's funny because like sleep is always one of the classic, Oh, I slept terribly last night, but you know, the research shows that it doesn't actually have you mm. know that much of an impact if you're going for something like a one RM. Mm, yeah. absolutely and i think looking at like in the in the broad scheme of things when it comes to your training bouts like you're still getting an adequate stimulus when it comes to working within a proximity of of failure and even let's say you haven't actually increased your your load or your repetitions on your on your primary movement perhaps you've matched the load from the previous week like that's still an adequate stimulus that is going to assist in your in your growth and development over time and perhaps is what's needed to then just kind of slowly push through that that plateau um, but I think there are some, perhaps some additional things that, that someone can think of outside of like an increase in repetition and increase in load where someone can, can really sort of intra, in, in, introspective, like think about these variables. And one of the things that I want to talk about was um, things like tension awareness, right? So you talked about like improving your technique. Like I think a way of, of focusing introspectively would be to identify if you've got like great tension awareness through the entirety of that movement. So actually, can you feel you know, that target, that target muscle really working through the intended range. Now I do think that there's like some caveat to this. So for example, if you're lifting uh, a very heavy load for a low repetitions on a back squat, like you're not just going to feel your quads working or anything like that. But I'd say for the most part, as bodybuilders, we tend to work within, you know, close to a 10 rep range for most things. So, you know, you're hack squatting, you're probably feeling your quads quite a bit within that particular movement. So having that tension awareness is, I think is really important. Are you directing the tension to the target tissue? perhaps thinking about something like um, metabolite production. So like, you know, you're finishing, let's say for example, you're doing a chest press, 
you're you're doing that that set you feel that great tension awareness in in the pec at the end of that set you got some sort of indication of intramuscular um, perturbation perhaps you've got that feeling of fatigue in the muscle belly or you've got that sort of sensation of like the burn at the end of the set you kind of jump up after the chest press you're like oh i've got be i can just feel i'm working i'm actually working my chest and then you know at the, at the end of that the multiple sets you might have some increase in like cellular swelling or perhaps the sensation of, of, the, of a pump in that particular, you know, muscle, if anything, we're not trying to maximize the pump in terms of our, our approach to training. But I do think that, you know, aside from objective measures of progress, I think there are some, perhaps some subjective things we can think about within our training sessions being, you know, attention awareness, metabolite production, and perhaps, you know, cellular swelling slash slash a pump as well. But still the, 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 the premise is that we're still trying to make some degree of progressive overload whilst perhaps still prioritizing these subjective measures in the same token. Mm. What do you guys think? I think that's very good, mate. And, you know, think outside the box, other metrics around the gym. How was your trip in? Did you get there a minute sooner? Did you have to take, you know, only one urination break instead of two? You know, let's think outside the box of how we're progressing. <laughs> so many ways case. to progress then, isn't there? Like exactly. less, less chat with your mate at the gym. More well, that's what I was going to say, yeah. Right? Like DY yeah. only got stopped by 17 clients instead of 23. <laughs> These are all little- I was flying through it, but it obviously came at a cost. Someone took my trademark D handle. You know, I was chatting a bit too long, took it off my bar, threw off my mental, went backwards. There you go. Quit bodybuilding. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> all right, moving on to our next question here was, have you guys ever tried any pre-exhaust techniques in the past? And if so- what were your success with them? What are your thoughts? What were they? Let's start with uh, you, Jack. Uh, I've tried a few when I've been injured. And like, for example, I started off with some BFR, leg extension, leg curl. Um, when I first started with AJ as well, I started off with leg extension and adductors um, in my lower body session. And then I went on to hacks afterwards. And I guess that would probably be the best representation for me because I wasn't injured um, I was healthy so I honestly wasn't a big fan myself because I would get to that major lift already feeling like physically I was still okay like I could still give it my all but mentally like I'd already gone to zero reps and reserve or failure on the leg extension and adductors like mentally or my CNS wasn't a hundred percent it wasn't um primed for, for the hack squat and therefore I, I wasn't a big fan um, because in in my mindset like I still wanted to turn up and and lift as much as I could on the hack when uh, I wasn't really capable of doing that after those two exercises so I think it can potentially have merit if uh, you are intentionally trying to lift a little bit less potentially on a certain lift um, but then I think other people would argue that they would still be just as strong despite doing like leg extension before a hack. I know Lawrence, you've had some experience. Are you usually the same, same sort of strength level despite the leg extension? Yeah. Yeah, I am. And mm. for me, look, it's not to say that I'm, you know, like, Oh, there's just, I can't fit all the plates on the hack. And that's why I do leg extension first. For me, it's more of like warming up the knees mm. and just getting a bit of load through them, get a bit of blood pumping. And I just find that, having a leg extension and then having the hack just makes me feel a little mm. bit better on the hack. No other reason than that. So does I that even count as pre-exhaustion then? Because Well, that's the thing. Like I'm not intentionally using that in order to then reduce the amount of load that I would require on the subsequent exercise. So I don't even, I don't think of it in my mind as a pre-exhaust. I just think of it as this is how I order my exercises based on comfort, you know, similar how people might put a, a lateral raise earlier in their session before they're pressing because it makes their shoulder feel a bit better. Mm. I'm actually quite similar as you, Lawrence. Like I tend to do a leg extension before my pendulums just because I just feel like it really warms up my my knees and my hips. Like I'm just doing some sort of, I've also done uh, like seated calf raises before doing hacks and, um, and also doing, not that that's necessarily a pre-exhaust technique, but uh, if it can improve my, you know, dorsiflexion via doing some stretch work prior, like under load, and that's translated to, to great to great improvements in positioning for like my my hack squats and my pendulums, for example. But I've even done things like lying leg leg curls before things like RDLs, as an example. And I've got a few athletes now who who you know perhaps they've they've felt a little bit of a, a niggle in their lower back whilst performing RDLs, 
straight into it as their first exercise. And we've kind of admitted that by doing some, some lying leg curl work prior to, and that seems to have completely managed it. So maybe they have, you know, on that topic of tension awareness, they've got sort of better tension awareness of that structure that they're trying to load through that RDL as opposed to just transitioning straight into it from the get-go. What yeah. about you? What about UDY? Have you used their pre-exhaustion in the past? Uh, I have. Uh, there's mainly two probably scenarios where I've used them. One was when I was in COVID and I had limited gym equipment. So like I only had a set amount of weight and stuff like that, that I would be able to do in my home gym. So I ran some stuff like some BFR training, like before legs. So in that way I could obviously pre-exhaust them. Same with like some stuff like arms and like some upper body movements, but in terms of actually using them in full-blown training, I haven't too much. Another situation where I've used them is when I was injured. So like when I wasn't able to do hack squats and stuff like that, um, or any like RDLing, I'll do like hamstring curls first. And then I might do another exercise. Like I might be able to do the RDL, but I'll do it a lot lighter. So then that way I can still do the same movement pattern. I don't need to do as much load. And it pretty much gives me like a similar stimulus. Um, but I'm similar to you guys as well. Like when I go to do like a hack squat or something like that, I pretty much always do like a couple of sets of leg extensions prior to, you know, make sure I'm going in there. Like I'm feeling it in the muscle, even though that's not the biggest thing, but like to ensure that it's pumped, I'm feeling it in the right areas. And it just makes my knees feel comfortable when I go down to do the movement. Now, is it really pre-exhausting? Not really. Cause I classify it more or less as a warm up. like, you know, 15, 20 mm. reps, get a good pump. And then I go in to do like the heavy hitting exercises, but same with like um, RDLs, like, you know, I might do a couple of sets of like a lying hamstring curl or something like that, but nothing serious to do real damage. But like I said, I wouldn't really count that as pre-exhausting. Mm. Lauren, so you, with your leg extensions prior to your, mm. your hack, your hack squats, are you like still taking those sets close to failure? Like, are you still counting those leg extensions as working sets or are they more like actual activation sets? Like, five reps in reserve like what's what's your take there yeah you've read my mind there dc because i was about to ask dy the same thing like you know for me at least they're not like a because I, I perfectly understand you know some people will just jump on the leg extension for their leg day warm-up and and do a few sets there and i think that's cool but yeah for me it's like a logbook you know in the logbook it says leg extensions before hack squats and i'm taking them to you know one or one or two um rir and trying to like progress those as the weeks mm -hmm. go on which you know i don't necessarily think is essential like some people might find they do that but they just don't log it and they they just know that they want to push to a decent intensity for their warm-ups before the hacks but maybe they come back to the leg extension later and then do a couple hard sets. But yeah, at least for me, it is a couple hard sets. I generally only do two. Um, my quad volume interest session is, is very low because I just, I can't really recover from anything more than like four. Um, but yeah, so generally it'll be two leg extension sets and then into the two hack squat sets. Mm, I'm the exact same as you, Lawrence. So they, they, those are actual working sets. Like mm. I log them and I, I want to try and make some sort of progression like where I can but they're not sort of light light sets per se. But um, you do yeah, four sets as well. I no, I won't do four sets. I'll typically do anywhere between. Two no, I mean three. for the uh, intraset volume, uh, intracession volume. Like, will your total like, quad sets be four or? Uh, it'll typically be around found five, five, mm. five sets. Yeah, so I'll do something like three sets for leg extensions, and then I might do sort of two working sets on like the the pendulum, something along those lines. Uh, one of my lower days does have a slightly higher uh, quad, quad volume. So it might be more around the um, like the seven, seven, eight, just with an additional accessory exercise. But it's typically between five, five to um, five to eight sets. Mm. What's yours, Jack? I've uh, recently increased mine for the week um, to about six each session. So about 12 for the week, just because mm. I'm biasing quads a bit more. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. Yeah, it's just what like, and I think we all have those muscle groups where, you know, you just don't need a lot. Like for me, like even after like the first two sets, for example, on like my second leg day where the main squat will be something like a V squat, I'll finish that. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like my quads are absolutely cooked. Mm. And then by the time I've finished then two sets on a leg press, for example, it's like, I couldn't do any more, even if I wanted to, you know what I mean? Like you just know that you're not really getting anything fruitful out of the rest mm, of those you're sets. almost like just flogging a dead horse right 
yeah it's, it's just the like exact same with me and and my my pressing my pressing volume like my chest volume i do eight sets in total for the entire week for for chest work Jeez, so, yeah wow and um but i just i feel so much tension through my chest and again like i'm the end of my well, that's, session that's I, quite a muscle group for you though where it's it's like the equivalent of lawrence's quads i would say well, yeah, I, I don't need to. Mm. I, I feel like in terms of my physique, probably the chest is one of the the lesser areas that I need mm. to focus my attention towards. But it's also because I just can't handle high volumes with with my chest work either. Yeah, um, that's also go that that's way. potentially yeah. the case with the chicken and the egg, though. Like, is it is the reason you can't handle more sets because your chest is has such a great propensity to like muscle damage or or adaptation? I'm not sure. Like, it's an interesting concept. Mm, yeah. yeah i'm not i'm not entirely sure what, yeah. what would be the exact reason but i think i just do really send it hard when i when i do do those sets right so mm. um, it's probably one of the muscles that i feel the most tension in across any exercise really but um yes moving on to our next question here and this is actually a great question for you jack considering mm -hmm. you are the dietitian and uh basically it was centered on my fitness pal so in my fitness pal, if I hit my protein, my carbs, and my fats macros to the gram, why does it till still tell me that I'm over in my calories? Mm. Yeah, probably the number one question I get about my fitness pal. I've been meaning to meaning to make a post on this, but I haven't yet. So I think there are three or four main reasons. Like reason one is just human error. Like we know that the majority of entries that we use is ultimately entered by someone else in my fitness pal, unless you use one that has like a green tick. And there's nothing wrong with that, but you just got to make sure that the macros actually add up to the calories because let's say something has like zero fat, um, zero protein and five carb, yet it has 25 calories. Like obviously something's wrong there. It should be 20 calories. Um, so that's one. Someone's just entered in the wrong data, which happens all the time. And two would be just a rounding error as well. Like if something has... You'll notice that in my fitness pal, there's no decimals for calories. And if something has 4.2 grams of protein, and then you multiply that by four to get the calories, then that technically is a decimal number. It's a calorie with a decimal point. Um, I, I have to use my calculator, so I don't know exactly, but that's another reason. Like it, it'll uh, it'll round it either up or down. Yeah, even then, even even I guess rounding with macros too, right? So if you look yeah. at a nutritional label. You know, something might contain 9.4 grams of protein, but it could actually have 9.44 grams of protein mm, exactly. as well, right? Yeah. And technically protein isn't exactly four calories per gram. It's four point something. So we, we just got to bear that in mind with nutrition that like even, even nutrition information panels are like plus or minus 25% accuracy. So we can't beat ourselves up about, um, although it's nice to go to the ground and especially in prep, like it's, it's probably warranted to be very accurate more so just for consistency's sake, but true accuracy with nutrition is just very difficult. Mm. And the, the third point would just be partial calories. Like for example, Obviously, fiber still contains calories, but many things just won't count fiber as calories. And that's how companies get around claiming that things have zero carbs or, or zero calories. Same with sugar alcohols as well. They contain partial calories and they're not necessarily listed as calories. So, um, yeah, those would be mm. the main points. Mm. I think there's also tends to be like a big confusion with the difference in in um, nutritional panels like in the US versus like here in, mm. in Australia. So. Like I know in, in the US, they actually count their their fiber as as a carbohydrate. So yeah. you know, obviously the 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 protein, carbs, and and fats therefore add up to the intended calories. Whereas here in Australia, we've got essentially fiber as as a separate entity, but the calories still counted from the contribution of fiber. Mm -hmm. So that kind of leaves leaves this like discrepancy where the protein, carbs, and fats doesn't quite equal the, the actual calories there. There might be a little bit of discrepancy there because mm. depending on the fiber, right, it's like two to three calories per, per gram uh, that it contains. Yeah, especially for something like oats where it's a shitload of fiber in oats or, or cognac noodles. Although I hope too many people aren't eating cognac. <laughs> well, why is that? Uh, it's just, I mean, I've eaten cognac before and... I, I've digested it fine, but for the, I think for most people, they would struggle to um, cope with the amount of resistant starch and insoluble fiber and cognac. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, the only reason I asked you to specify that is because for the exact same reason, right? I think it's, yeah. it's almost a food that um, a lot of contest prep competitors look at as being like, quote unquote, a free food because it's just mm. so low in, in calories, right? But it's also just incredibly high in fiber. Yeah. So if you not notice there's some changes to your digestive uh, motility the days following, then perhaps that could be a reason. Yeah. But um, DY, were you going to say something? Sorry, I interrupted you there. Yeah, no, another one is uh, alcohol consumption. So if you're mm. drinking alcohol, it's obviously not going to cut full under protein, carbs, or fats, and then therefore it will throw off the calories completely. Mm. Mm. That's it's a good such one. a it's such a um, annoying point, isn't it? Like how you know someone might look at a beer bottle and they'll go, "Oh, like it's got like no carbohydrates." And most most uh, beers do actually try and specify themselves as being low carb, right? Because I guess technically, yes, low carb, mm. but alcohol still contains calories, right? Seven calories per gram. So ethanol. So um, yes, I guess that's, that's a great variable to, to discuss. But I'm um, sure you boys have all been victims of someone that said they hit their macros and they send their calories and they're like completely <laughs> off. I'm like, what the hell has gone on here? And just, yeah, a yeah, cu- couple of beverages were consumed. That's for sure. Yeah. 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 You add up the, the, the macros and there's a discrepancy of about 600 calories and you're like, what is going on here? <laughs> oh, I just had a few beers on the weekend. Yeah, sure, man. The sure, grey sure, goose sure. copped it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because I'm not, obviously none of us are, are massive drinkers. So I, I dare not even ask Jack this question, but do either of you boys like any beers? Because I, for one, think it's just putrid. I hate beers. I can't stand them. Shocking. <laughs> yeah, real bad. Mm. I feel like I can get away with with one, but I have to. It has to be a very hot day, and it can be you know somewhat thirst quenching. But to, to be fair, it, it's it's kind of tastes like piss in a bottle, right? It's, <laughs> it's, just, it's just not really that great. Like I, I feel like any time I've had beer, it's because I've been socially inclined to drink it with others around me. Like put it mm. this way, I'm not driving up to the bottle o, grabbing myself a six pack, and you know sitting in my in my desk doing check ins with a beer next to me, like got no interest in that whatsoever yeah and that's probably for most alcoholic beverages to be honest i'm not mm, fair that's honestly with me that's why i don't I, I don't drink because most of them just taste like piss to me <laughs> not that i've drunk piss before but it could be an extremely hot day you got the best beer a bit of lime and a corona and i still wouldn't even touch it it's disgusting no chance mm, for sure well, let's, uh, let's talk about our next question here. And this was a, uh, a question centered around the conditioning of athletes on stage. So why do competitors turn up unconditioned? Is it that the coaches are not you know, pushing these athletes enough? Is it the athletes that are not pushing themselves enough? I think there's many factors above and beyond probably these two variables. But um, what are your thoughts, Jack? Yeah, there's definitely a variety of answers to this. And I'll try and separate this into two parts because there are certainly clients who work really hard and there are coaches who push that individual hard because they can be pushed and they'll, they'll follow the plan well. And yet they still might not turn up overly conditioned or not to the same conditioning as they, they were trying to work towards. And I think that comes down to their muscularity personally, and maybe even their, their genetic propensity to look very conditioned. Um, uh, especially younger athletes um so that would be one is and that would be i guess a circumstance which is less common where the where the athlete and the coach have done some really great work together and yet they still don't turn up as uh, as conditioned as they may have liked and i wanted to raise that because there are people who might not turn up as conditioned as as um as the standard wants um despite working super hard but i think probably the the second most common thing for me would just be either not giving enough credit to how much weight they need to lose and that tying in with uh, someone's starting point as well, like someone's starting point really not being reflective for a, uh, a comp prep. Mm, absolutely. What's your thoughts, DY? Yeah, the, uh, Jack's pointed out some good ones there, but like there could be some differences with like adherence from a client. Maybe some clients might not want to, like as sad as it is, as it is a bodybuilding competition, not everyone's there to win. Like, you know, like there might be someone there that's lost 20, 30 kilos in the end, there's divisions that are suited for them. Like, you know, transformation divisions, they might want to jump into a couple of the other divs where they might not look as conditioned, but doesn't mean they don't earn the right to be on stage. Sure. Could they be a little bit more conditioned, but in the end, 
it's their journey. If they want to make it the stage, they still look probably decent. Maybe they're not at BK level conditioning with the glutes. Doesn't mean they can't uh, end up there, but like, you know, there's also other things as well. Like, you know, maybe the compliance on the client's part might not have been up to scratch. Maybe the PT might've lacked a few things in terms of, you know, structure to their prep. Like what Jack said, not having enough time, so on like that. There's probably a couple there, but I'm sure there's a long list. Mm, what about you, Lawrence? Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I think the guys have covered that well. I think it's just important to remember that we only get a snapshot of what people have gone through in a prep. Like just judging someone's stage package. And well, I suppose it's difficult because, you know, you can judge someone's package on stage and you can do that in a way that, you know, is very objective as far as just in terms of the quality of the physique being displayed. But I don't necessarily think we should read too far into, you know, how hard has that person worked or have they had the most optimal approach? Because we have no idea what's going on, you know, in that 25 to 30 weeks. It could be a miracle that they got to that point, you know what I mean? And, and they just had this goal of standing on stage and, you know, whatever came to be, things went wrong, but they still wanted to push through and, and at least celebrate that day with their friends or their family or something like that. So I definitely think it's, almost impossible to say like for sure what the main issue is i think the boys have highlighted some common ones but i think it's also important to remember that you know for a lot of people getting to the stage is is everything um like if you just look at it on pure percentages there's going to be a much smaller amount of people on show day that are actually a chance of winning than there is going to be people who just make it to show day so for a lot of people just getting there on the day and, and looking respectable and like they belong is the goal. So not everyone is, you know, got ICN overall champion circled on their motivation board for a lot of people. It's just getting there. So I think just trying not to connect too many dots and, you know, make too many assumptions about competitors and coaches, I think is, is probably a good thing because we've all, you know, undertaken our own challenges to get there on the day. Mm. Yeah, there, I mean, there are so many variables to play, isn't there? Like in terms of what could determine whether someone turns up with the appropriate conditioning or not, like the timeline, uh, the adherence of the client, the proper planning of the, of the coach as well. Uh, perhaps in the, in the planning timeline, you might need to give yourself an additional, like whatever you'd calculate in terms of your rate of loss, you might actually have to give yourself an extra five weeks on top of that just to, you know, somewhat play it safe for the occasion where perhaps there's a lack of adherence or maybe just a, a halt in progress or the fact that in like a six month time frame, which most, most people would prep for, there might be something that arises outside of, um, you know, the norm that might influence your ability to derive your results. So, you know, again, coming back to what you said, Lawrence, like there's just so many things that could affect things, right. That, that we don't even know just by simply just looking at someone on that stage. I think ultimately you can just control what you look like, right? You can do your best to, to plan appropriately as a coach. You can do your research in regards to, you know, what are the conditioning requirements of that specific category? Uh, you know, look at the athlete in front of you, have a have an idea as to what their rough stage weight will be. And then you obviously kind of work your, your weeks back from there in terms of determining where their starting point should be. And I think a big one is, is the emphasis towards running a bit of a, like a pre-preparatory phase as a means of really trying to get ahead you know, I think it's important to almost view this pre-prep phase as somewhat of a, like laying the foundation for your, your prep. So perhaps in that pre-prep phase, how I would typically run things is, let's say, for example, it was a mini cut phase to begin with as a means of just kind of cleaning up body composition prior to the commencement of a contest prep. And then you might look to hold that particular body composition in place and actually practice maintenance uh, for a period of, let's say, you know, three to four weeks so that you can really set your behaviors appropriately prior to the commencements of your contest prep. And if you're a little bit ahead of time in terms of your conditioning, uh, I think that's, that's probably better than being perhaps behind where you need to be in terms of your start. Like I always think it's better to have more weeks in your timeline than less so that you can, you can simply appease that by or, or implement something like a, a diet break or an additional refeed day. Like I'd much rather be an athlete implementing something like that as opposed to just digging, 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 digging further and further and further because, you know, we are, we are human at the end of the day. We all have that sort of breaking point. And I think a coach almost needs to anticipate with it, with all their athletes that there is going to be a breaking point for these individuals and somewhat planning that for a time, like within your timeline, I think is very important. 
yeah, I think the pre-prep phase is something that has, it's almost like it's a, it's a arisen or become more popular in like the last two to three years. Um, certainly something that unless a client that comes to me is looking, is in pretty good nick, I'll almost always run a pre-prep phase with them. That'll involve some weight loss. Mm, I'm the same. I'm the same as you, Jack. Like a lot of people now are like, I'll always want to run a pre-prep phase because it just gets them in a lot better spot to start with. But not only that, it's a good time to establish the habits like that you want to have in a prep. Like if you can't nail a mini cut at, you know, 18 weeks before you start stage and then you can't hit your maintenance calories or whatever it might be leading into your prep. What's to say that you're going to hit 28 weeks of a deficit if you can't Mm -hmm. even do like the first couple of weeks to get you in the best spot. So I also use it like more or less to establish some good habits. So it is a successful prep. Mm. And as a, as a coach, do you guys feel as though it's necessary to have run a diet phase with the athletes that you take on prior to a contest prep, just as a means of learning a little bit more about that athlete before they actually start? It would be nice to, but I don't think it's like a hundred percent needed. Like I've worked with people where we might build for like 20 to like 30 weeks before they even start prep. And you can roughly get a good guide on how they're going just by the amount of calories they're eating, how their weight trends, you know, like if they're on 3000 calories and the weight's hardly budging as a female, chances are it's going to be quite a smooth little prep. Mm. What about you, Jack? Yeah, I think I do, would like to. And I'm very much, um, yeah, as, if any of my, I'm sure some of my clients are listening to this, they'll know that I'm, I have a little joke with them. And I, I might have even said this on the podcast, but I try and persuade people not to prep before they prep. And what I mean by that is they really have to uh, convince me that they are 100% in it. And they're not, um, they're not going to let anything slip during that prep. Um, and sure, things might always come up. But I really like to make sure that people know what to expect and that they're ready to give it their all. Mm, yeah. I even remember when I first like commenced my, my contest prep back for, for 2020 season a, and I feel like as a first timer, you you don't really know what is going to be required of you in terms of like the things that you need to tick off every single day, meticulously, like, you know, hitting your macros, hitting your, your calories, uh, nothing more, nothing less when it comes to nutrition Uh, you know, trying to strive towards never hitting a training session, hitting your steps every day, prioritizing your sleep, getting in multiple sessions within the week in terms of posing, you know, posing practice. Like I remember slightly falling short of a couple of these things and, uh, and basically Brandon being like, Hey man, like, like pull, pull your socks up, dude. Like we've got a, we've got some work to do. And I was like, Oh shit. Like I'm, I'm kind of used to being so relaxed in the off season of not really Mm. prioritizing these, these things. So it almost took me like a week or two to sort of really like nail everything. And then I had everything to the gram for the rest of the, the prep. But I think the pre-prep phase can sort of almost like iron that out a little bit, right? Cause you don't really want the first month of your prep to just be, Hey, like, let's like every check-in to be like, Hey, come on, man. Like you can get a little bit closer to your macros here, or, mm-hmm. Hey, you're a bit short on your steps this week. You're a thousand under, like, I need you to bump this up. It's like, we don't, like in the timeline, we don't really have time for not that, right? Mm. So I think that pre-prep phase is good to kind of iron out some of those things because we are all human at the end of the day. We need, you know, some some of us do need a little bit of a kick in the butt to to sort of take that next step and level yeah. these things up. But uh, moving into our next question, this was basically something centered around things that we've previously done that we really believed in that we no longer implement now. Start with you, DY. One that was probably big for me is like high volume training. Like, I guess the more you do, the more you're going to get out of it, which obviously, as we know now, as all you guys are doing about eight sets of quads a week, you know, it isn't really true. I always used to think and like, you know, used to watch some YouTubers and they used to be very big on like, you know, volumes, the key to getting jacked it's like you know the more volume you do, but in the end, it was actually just at a detriment. And now I find far more a lot more progress by doing a lot less volume. So that's probably one thing that I've definitely changed my views on. I'm not going to take them all up, but I'm sure you boys could probably agree. He's probably mm. started out. Mm. I know Jack, especially like, you know, he was doing extremely high volume training previously. Yeah. Before. yeah. Cause I guess if like volume was the only driver for hypertrophy, I mean, why, why aren't guys that have been training for 30 years doing like 20 sets of 10 mm. or, you know, well, why aren't marathon <laughs> you know what runners jumped? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Right. <laughs> What about you, Lawrence? Anything that you previously believed in you're not doing now? Oh, mate, like, unfortunately, I feel like I've, I've jettisoned a lot of what I've learned at uni because you, you just come to understand that these things are just not what we're taught. Like, for example, I don't know if you were ever taught this one, DC, 
you it's called the stalk test and you use it to assess like pelvic stability have you did you ever come across that one no i've not i have not yeah. uh, used so it's that, like that you, you palpate like i've, I've the, heard of it before but i've not it's not something that i've used in practice yeah yeah so like you palpate the sacrum and then you palpate like the psis which is uh like a bony part of the pelvis you get someone to lift their leg and then you're measuring and you're looking at your thumbs and you're feeling in inverted commas for any sort of excessive movements and stuff like that. And, mm. you know, then that's a, an indicator that the pelvis is unstable or something like that. But then, you know, when you come into practice and you, you sort of look at the actual validity behind these tests, like they've done a lot of research on this sort of thing and they've basically found there is absolutely no sort of consistency in what people reproduce. So really like people are just guessing. So there's no mm. way to actually tell what's going on. And unfortunately, there's a lot of things like that in physio world. Like there was, there's a lot of particularly tests, like a lot of these orthopedic tests that is designed to stress part of a joint or put tension on a muscle. And you just sort of bring them into clinical practice and you, you realize that they're actually not very good. They're pretty good at telling you that, you know, my shoulder hurts when you push it in that position at that angle, but they're not very good at telling you anything else. So yeah, I've, I've done away with a lot of those tests, um, even in my relatively short time in physio. Awesome. What about you, Jack? Uh, a nutrition one for me to kind of follow up from Lawrence's physio one would be uh, intra-workout actually. And I never used to take intra-workout, never really gave it much credence. And this off season, I've been using uh, carbohydrate intra and particularly in my mini cut, although the mini cut was only for three weeks, like I did notice more of a difference in there, but even a subtle difference in my, in my uh, training sessions in a surplus, um, even if it's a little bit of a placebo effect, like it's still, it's still a, a benefit. Mm, mm, awesome. And I think in terms of my, I guess my wokeism of sorts was when that whole, I don't even know what year it was, but you know, when the whole, like the, the concept of flexible dieting really started to like boom mm. and I went away from the, the rigid meal plans and all of it, it came all about, you know, if it fits your macros and you can kind of eat whatever you want, as long as it fits within the parameters of your macros. Like I think in the early stages of my, my understanding and learning of, of these sorts of concepts is I sort of buy it, bought into that very much. And I kind of disregarded the concept of using more rigid plans and its application in certain settings. And I think I kind of swung one way too much. And that's kind of all I preached was just how great flexible dieting is. And I think like it definitely has its merits, but there's certainly times where like a more rigid approach to nutrition is beneficial. And if you look mm -hmm. at the constraints of a Connors prep, like it's probably better to run a bit more of a fixed plan than, than have every day looking extremely different with regards to your nutrition plan. Right. Uh, I think the decision Sorry. fatigue associated with, with having to, to play nutritional Tetris with your protein, carbs, and fats every single day, as opposed to just, you know, thinking more about nutrition in the matter of how can I be, you know, consistent across my days, as opposed to how can I add as much variation as possible in my food selection within the constraints of my calories slash macros. I think if you look at even just a anecdotal standpoint, like the people who diet the most effortlessly, I can guarantee you the majority of them will be sort of have a little bit of flexibility, especially around social occasions when they do need to deviate, but a lot of them will be sticking to relatively similar things day to day. Mm. I think, especially in contest prep. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right, boys. Well, I think that's basically everything to talk about in today's podcast. Basically, oh, there's one up. more. Was there? What's the right? What's yeah, the question? In. There's one more question. Yes. Jack snuck it in down the bottom. Ah, right. Leaving the juicy stuff for, for last, hey? Who would win in a five-kilometer race? Are we talking like a running race? Mate, I, wasn't I don't know if that feel, finishing a swim. <laughs> swim race? Yeah. What, are we, <laughs> what are we talking about here? I think it has to be running because I know you would you would uh, trump us all in a swimming race. Oh, yeah, I mean, this I, is true. I, I mean, I used to be great at swimming when I was, when I was a, a lot younger. And I think I'd be okay across like a 50-meter and a 100-meter, but... I mean, the last, the last stint of um, swimming I did, I actually did a triathlon in like, God, I did the swimming leg of a triathlon back in 20, 2018, somewhere around there, uh, or might've even been 2019. And you didn't make it to the running after? No, because it was a team effort. Like I, oh, did right, the swimming, okay. I did the swimming leg and I did some practice leading up to it because I kind of got dragged into it by um, a guy named Nathan, who's a, a CrossFitter where I used to, to work back at um, Moore Park, the, the Virgin Active there. 
And we sort of just created a bit of a team off, off the, the spur of, you know, wanting to do something random. I was like, yeah, man, I'll do it, whatever. And uh, I did it, but I remember just being so gassed from it because I just had mm. not done a lot of swimming. And that was a two kilometer swim, maybe three kilometer swim. So 5K would be, man, that'd be tough right now. That's for sure. I think but, DY um, would win the, the 5K run. He's the lightest here. His knees wouldn't give out first. <laughs> I am slightly injured and I do weigh about probably 15 kilos less than both all of you. But (laughs) if I had the vote, I'd probably say Lawrence. Mate, why is that? I just want it. I don't know. (laughs) I just feel like he's got them Usain His lungs are permanently crippled now though. Yeah. Yeah. But to be fair, like I'm actually one of those, I I feel like my general fitness is pretty good. Like I've never been someone who, you know, like oh, people get into the off season, they're like, oh, my fitness, like, it's just terrible now. I'm so heavy. It's like, dude, like grow up, like literally, like you may be a few kilos above your, like your settling point. Like if you're heaving and hoeing, like on the leg press, like give me a spell, like your so fitness can't be that so bad. So you're, you're what, you're not wheezing after like 12 reps of side laterals? Is that? Is yeah. That yeah. <laughs> DC's Apple watch is like telling him to get to the emergency room when he's finished like... <laughs> It's just and automatically said, like contacted the hospital and it's just like yeah. sent out an ambulance because I've done 14 reps of a side lateral and I'm just... <laughs> and yeah, you still yeah. got the other arm to go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, okay. What about if we shorten the distance, like a hundred meter sprint? What I reckon a hundred meter sprint, I'd, I'd go Lawrence. I reckon. No, I think I'm trumping you guys in a hundred meters. Oh, speed oh, demon right. under here. Yeah, right. I reckon the hair would slow him down. For know? sure. Not as aerodynamic. Uh, I think I'm the only one who did like a proper... Did you guys do team sports? Like I know you did cricket, Lawrence, but... Yeah, I played football for a little bit. Yeah. And mate, when I was 12, let me tell you, absolute speed merchant. <laughs> no one was chasing me down. Speed merchant. That's the first time I've heard of that. Mm. I didn't do too much apart from in primary school. <laughs> All about Jack's like, oh, you guys, did you guys like do any sport when, when you guys were yeah, I'm so so the only one that did sport or were you just kind of like lazy fucks? <laughs> That's a DC. Crack out the pro card. Show him. <laughs> Gotta let him know. Yeah, for my non-cardiovascular bout of, of exercise. I'll see you guys at the track next week. After the rig session. Yeah. yeah. This Saturday, it's actually a race. We're not training. <laughs> All right, boys. Well, I think that wraps up another episode of the Bodybuilding Down Under podcast. Thank you for joining us today. If you loved today's episode, remember to give us a subscribe and an awesome review, and we will certainly see you in the next episode.